from WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color. How do you like that? The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good luck. We care about your world. Stay tuned. Today, we're going to hear interviews with two clinical psychotherapists. In the second half of the show, I'll have Ronald J. Frederick, whose practice focuses on the transforming power of emotional and relational experience. And we'll be talking about his new book, Loving Like You Mean It, Use the Power of Emotional Mindfulness to Rewire Your Brain and Transform Your Relationships. We'll begin with an interview I did with Terry Marks Tarlow. Terry Marks Tarlow is a clinical psychotherapist, a yoga teacher, artist, and dancer who focuses on deep transformation, bringing mindfulness, embodied movement, and creativity into her practice. She's written numerous books and articles on play, creativity, nonlinear science, and the use of intuition in psychotherapy, as well as a coloring book for adults and older children called the Mindfulness Coloring Book, which explores the possibilities of healing through self-expression and self-examination. So I thought I would open with a quote from one of your articles. I think it's this from William Stanley. Newtonian physics implied the universe was a vast machine. The quantum model showed there is no machine, but a mysterious entanglement with the observer. 
The area of preparation must now include the participant observer. Newtonian physics suggested an end to free will and creativity. The quantum model put the observer back in the universe as a participant creator. In Newton's world, ambiguity was the enemy. Mechanism stresses the absolute, the unchanging, and the certain. Things are either or, good, bad. In the quantum world, reality is both and. A coexistence of mutually contradictory possibilities, all equally true, each one a potentially possible constituent of reality. A-causal, non-local synchronicities can give rise to events that seem to pop up out of thin air. There are no isolated, separate, closed systems in nature. In this universe of wholeness, everything affects everything else, from the most fundamental particles to faraway galaxies at the edge of the universe. Wow. (laughs) I would really like to know how you got into nonlinear science and how you integrate this into your work. You said you like to go deep and you're jumping there right at the very beginning here. How did I get into it? Actually, I think that's the Feynman story. I went to graduate school at UCLA. Then I had this early life crisis when I got out because I wasn't sure what I was interested in. And when I got interested in creativity, I then put something in to teach a course at UCLA Extension as a way of learning about creativity. I, through that process, wound up being asked to moderate this huge course, which scared me to death because I didn't feel qualified at all. I was merely a student who didn't know anything about creativity, but in the process, it opened all these doors. And one of these doors was the psychiatrist Oscar Janiger, who fed LSD to artists in the 60s and had never told anyone about it professionally because he was teaching at Irvine and he wanted to remain respectable. So I wound up in a drawing session with Richard Feynman and we would meet weekly and I realized that I had the opportunity to pick the brain of reputedly the smartest man in the world and I started to read all about science at that point and kind of stumbled into nonlinear science, which was really kind of coming to the forefront at the time. So that's how I got into it. So what really interested you about it, and how did you end up integrating into your psychotherapy work? You know, I I think I've always been intuitively drawn that there's just something hums inside me, something zings inside me when I find profundity. But I think what part of what you read about paradox is one of the most interesting things to me. There's something very deep about it. Maybe it's having read Cohen's and having a spiritual sense that this is the path to enlightenment. And uh, Alan Watts, I used to love Alan Watts and speak about the radio. And so just the sense that, that there's something very, very deep about this path. And it's away from logic. There's, I don't know, something feels sterile about logic. And when you do therapy, there's nothing sterile about it at all. It's messy and it's ambiguous. It's everything that you read in that quote. It's filled with complexity. It's filled with mystery. So the sides had the same 
kinds of feeling tones to me, as therapy does. So how do you deal with all that complexity and ambiguity and messiness in your therapy work with clients? Well, I definitely don't try to fix people. And I, I come at it more from a, the position of a voyeur than an earth mother. And that's helpful, too. I'm really fascinated. And also, my husband likes to say that my power as a therapist is in really empowering people and having this sort of relentless hope and positivity. So I don't tend to diagnose and pathologize, and I am very good at finding progress in tiny little spaces. And once you find the progress, if you verbalize it, it tends to build on itself. So that helps people change quickly. So do you find that that has an infectious effect on your clients? I think, I think, yeah, I think I'm an inspirational therapist. People feel inspired by my energy and focus and, yeah, everything is contagious. So it sounds like you have this ability to see like these pinpricks of light in the darkness. Exactly, yeah. And then somehow your your sense of optimism and hope feeds it. Right. And you connect to it. Right. And you kind of nurture that in that healing space right. with your clients. I think that's right. And uh, I, no, I haven't quite, ver- that's a beautiful way of verbalizing it. I just love that approach, which is mm-hmm. exactly why I would love to have you as my therapist, <laughs> you know, at least just for the fun of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is fun. I it also would, like to laugh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You talk a lot about humor and creativity and play in your work. Right. And how do you bring those into your psychotherapy work when you have clients who come in who are bringing their problems and their issues? And often they're not even clear about what their problems are. And, and you're kind of in this space of unknowing. And you have the responsibility of trying to figure out what's going on doing your, your sleuthing well, and all that. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes humor is a way of gaining perspective. It's also a way of joining with a person to gain perspective and being on the same side. And I'm not talking about sarcastic humor because that doesn't work at all. Although I, I shouldn't, I, I don't have rules like that because even every rule does get broken. So there's probably a place for sarcasm. But I think play makes it safe for people. Also, children learn the most through play. They, they find their cutting edge in play, and there are no consequences. So people can play with new possibilities and feel safe about doing that. It lightens up the dark, and it helps to not take oneself too seriously. I think that also can work well. So is play something that you do in your therapy work, or is it something that arises spontaneously. It arises spontaneously, and I am not a play therapist, and I don't work with children, so it's really at an implicit level that play happens, not so much an explicit level. And is it something that you're aware is happening, or is it something that that you only recognize mm. in retrospect? Probably more in retrospect, yeah. So I'm curious, if it's happening implicitly, are you just like playing into the play in the moment with your clients? That's a good way of putting it. Because you talk a lot about the space between the client mm-hmm. and therapist. Mm-hmm. Right. So, for example, let's say I have somebody who comes in and 
is more depressed and is stuck somewhere. And it could be really hard. If somebody is really repetitive, could be hard to keep interest. So I keep interest partly by playing with that whole situation. I'm trying to find a way in to shift something. And so I'll just play with entering in different ways. And that feels like a form of play to see what I can do to help generate something different and get some movement happening. So it's it's almost like playing with ideas sometimes. And that would be a situation where I'm almost playing with myself more, mm-hmm. you know, and in an effort to connect in a different way and draw the person into play or into taking a risk emotionally or something like that. So you're really exploring relationship with the person. Oh, definitely. This is all relational play. (sighs) And I think play at the implicit level is like a relational bid for connection or disconnection and often a statement of safety or lack of safety. And so I, I kind of listen between the words to find that feeling, which is really about the relationship and what's needed. Some people need me to come in and try to connect in a sort of aggressive way. Some people need me to stand back because they've been intruded upon or they've been violated and they need to know I can take care of myself if they have horrible stuff to say that I won't get too affected by it or this sort of thing. So there's all these this implicit messaging back and forth that most of it's not conscious. It's all not conscious and some of it trickles up to consciousness. That's so fascinating. I was going to ask you, how do you know which way to go? But then you you just said that a lot of it's happening unconsciously. Yeah, the body knows. It's weird. So talk about how the the body knows. Because the unconscious is in the body. I think Freud started out at the very disembodied place where he wasn't looking at his patients. They weren't looking at him. He's sitting away and he's just listening as if kind of the words are floating and nobody has any bodies. Mm-hmm. But even there. So I think we got this initial sense of the unconscious being in the head mm-hmm. somehow. But it's not. It's in the body. It's in the implicit movement and processing that happens underneath awareness, which is most of what we process. And awareness is sort of like the icing on the cake that gives us the illusion that we have some control over what's happening. But it's after the fact. So psychotherapy work, isn't it the work of bringing that implicit unconscious stuff into the light of awareness and Um, making it explicit? No, actually, not necessarily. Ah. Not necessarily, because, and that's a really common fallacy, as if there's sort of one chain or something from unconscious to conscious, but there are two separate ones. There's an implicit, and there's an explicit. Consciousness is in the explicit. Some people get healed without ever being explicit about it. Like children, for example, may not have to verbalize what's happening at all. But if the relationship is healed... And if they become more secure in it and they become more secure with themselves and more connected to their own intuition and their own instincts, they don't need to be self-conscious about or, you know, have conscious awareness of that process. Most people in therapy do, but it isn't converting one to the other. That's a relational process, too. 
the relationship between the explicit and the implicit is another level. It's like a self-self relations. So they're not separate things. They are separate things. But, and you have to bridge them they, with... They may be. They may not be. They, you know, some people have a real split between conscious and unconscious. A real split. And is that kind it's, of a split unhealthy or is unhealthy, that... Yeah. Okay. It's unhealthy. I guess that's what I was alluding yeah, yeah. to. Yeah. Right. I mean, you need, you know, the the more we can bridge that gap with awareness, the healthier we are, certainly as adults. But, you know, if I had to pick one, it's the implicit level that needs to be healed. So you, you said that you don't necessarily need to bring the implicit into awareness, right. but don't we have to go into the implicit, like the journey of going into the underworld mythologically? Um, Not that we necessarily need to yeah, talk most, about I mean, it. Most people do. Well, certainly, yeah. We certainly need to dive into our dark side, if mm-hmm. that's what you mean, and experience ourselves fully, experience all our emotions and anything that's been repressed or dissociated. Absolutely. But the direct experience is a little different than the interpretation of the experience. So, yeah, we have to dive into ourselves deeply. So that brings up another fascinating kind of conundrum. When you're doing psychotherapy work with people, you just mentioned the importance is for them to directly experience what's Mm -hmm. inside themselves. Right, rather than to analyze. And rather than even talking about it necessarily. Necessarily, right. How do you deal with that without necessitating them actually talking about things so that you're aware of what they're going through and how aware of what they're going through do you need to be or can you just through your bodily relationship with them recognize that they're in that authentic place i think different therapists have different levels of skill in feeling out what's happening inside of someone when they're say highly emotional or about to become emotional, or a little tiny shifts in the face and the body that indicate a shift in self-state. I am actually less skilled than some. In my workshop yesterday, there was a woman who I couldn't believe how skilled she was. I could tell. And of course, after 30 years of practice, I've gotten way more skilled than I was, and I compensate in lots of different ways. But I tend to take information in more from the outside than the inside. And so I'm a little less body connected than some people, and especially somatic workers. And so I do rely more on words, but I know when to ask for words by what's going on. And there's some advantage to the level that I trust people to speak about what's happening. So now I'm violating what I said to you earlier in the sense that I'm pretty word-focused. But it also fits in with the ambiguity and, the and no rules. Yeah, and, and the paradox. paradox. Yeah. So, so you're, yeah. you're still safe. It's okay, right. Yeah. I know. <laughs> See? See how it's safe to, yeah. to Did, work with paradox? So it sounds like you allow a lot of space for what you could call mistakes and momentary failures well, in, mistakes in, are great. in the exploration. Mistakes are great because when I mess up and I'm non-defensive about it, I'm modeling something that mm. is so important mm. for people. Mm. And actually... I think being non-defensive is one of my greatest strengths as a therapist. Mm -hmm. If someone says, if I say make an interpretation and someone says that's wrong, I will always 
back away from pressing. I rarely have the sense that I know more than the person does. Although, so, you know, again, to any role, there's an exception. Once in a while, I'll have a sense that something's going on that person's not yet aware of. But I feel like it's, it's interesting, actually, to help people connect with their unconscious because it's tricky business to, you know, by the very definition, it's an area of self that is not conscious. So how do you know what's true with something? And so I like to describe it as it's a kind of resonance with it. Like you'll know if something is wrong. It just won't resonate at all. But it's a sideways kind of feeling, not a frontways feeling of sensing that could be so. And that's all that I would need with something like that. Something could be so, and then let it simmer and see what brews out of that. It's a little bit like peripheral vision. It's looking at the stars. Mm-hmm. You can see them more clearly than looking straight on when they're faint. You talk a lot about and write a lot about intuition in your psychotherapy mm-hmm. work. Is that what you're referring to? Sure. That's definitely an important part of intuition is, is sensing something might be so and finding where the resonances are. And how easy is it to trust, to learn to trust our intuition and to actually hear it and feel it and honor it, particularly growing up in this culture of ours? That's a big topic. I mean, this culture probably does everything not promote inadvertently to not promote tapping into intuition. I have a model for how intuition develops that begins with children having complete space for free play. And I think that's become less and less safe. On the one hand, for parents, they're afraid to. I just, somebody told me yesterday that parents are being prosecuted for letting their children run free Mm. as neglect. That really scares me because I think that that kind of freedom in the body and the mind and the soul is really important for coming into oneself, finding oneself. So on the one hand, the sense of danger in the environment is problematic. On the other hand, the sort of virtual play that's happening solely, and I have nothing against that kind of play unless it takes the place of the kind of play that includes the full body. And then on the other hand, there's too much structure going on. When parents structure every minute of their child's life, there's no opportunity to structure one's own time and come up with one's own rules for engagement. And when children do that, where they make the rules for how to play with one another and then internalize that, that's how they learn how to regulate themselves and how to make society. Mm. I want to get back to the element of risk and danger in play and how important that is, because you write about that too. And it also reminded me of one of my favorite interviews from a couple of years ago with Amy Fusselman, who wrote this amazingly wonderful, very small book called Savage Park about these parks that were developed in Scandinavia. And she got to visit one of them in Tokyo with her two small children. Mm -hmm. And these parks are full of inherent risk because children are allowed to do things that most parents in America would just go through the roof of that. Fabulous. What are they allowed to do? Like climb things? Well, it was a wide open park and all they had were these attendants in the park to facilitate 
whatever might need to be done in the park. They didn't do anything other than just be there and make sure that everything was attended to. Wow. And children were allowed to do whatever they could get themselves into. Wow, how fabulous. Yeah, exactly. And that's what made this book so fascinating. So I would love to hear your perspective on why that's so important in a child's development. Children navigate by going to edges. They just naturally, I mean, do you remember when you were a kid spinning until you fell down? Well, we're always testing the limits. Always testing the limits because we learn by crossing lines and all the way through. So that starts in early play where getting dizzy, climbing so high you can't get down... And often doing things where we fall down and hurt ourselves. And hurt ourselves, Because yeah. that's how we learn how to navigate in physical space. How to navigate in physical space, but also how to navigate in emotional space. And how to stretch the window of tolerance, affect tolerance. Because by having some pain mixed in with the pleasure and by not being able to tell the difference between the two, that's how we learn to go to our edges and to risk, which of course is necessary at an abstract level for creativity as well. And doesn't it help to regulate our relationship with our nervous system, our autonomic oh, nervous system? And how, how does that work? Because that's so critical in, in a child's development because that, of course, sets the tone for an adult's ability to function in life and to self, be self-regulating and to be able to tolerate stress and to be resilient in the face of the unknown and continual change. That's right. That's right. And arousal is the more important dimension than valence. Mm. In other words, being able to tolerate the intensity of emotion is much more important to a dysregulated or pathological state than whether the emotion is positive or negative. We all need the full range of emotion and a lot of people wind up not being able to tolerate intensity so when children are throwing themselves around and banging and getting hurt they're learning to tolerate intensity and that really is where resilience comes from and the window of tolerance stretching wider and wider which is a critical dimension to being able to let in novelty and lead an open life to things coming in without defense. Right. The ability to stay open. The ability to stay open is probably the most critical dimension. Because it's not what actually happens out in the world around us that's so important, but how we learn to respond to it. Right. And how we stay open. And ultimately, to be able to stay present in the face of anything that's occurring. Exactly. And that seems to be the goal. If, exactly. if there's such a thing as a goal in psychotherapy work. That's well put, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I and that's, that's the great so. challenge. And as you mentioned also, to do that emotionally is so, like in relationship, because we're continually being tested on an emotional level in ways that are probably even more challenging than the physical challenges. Absolutely. And in intimate relations, in our romantic relationships, people don't seem to understand that they're going to be faced with what feels life-shattering and threatening. Even worse than death itself in many ways. Yeah. Annihilation. The worst Potential annihilation. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so easy to think that because we're feeling that it's the wrong person, but it goes hand in hand with 
passion, depth. So I've got a couple of different metaphors for what that is like. And one of them is being in an intimate relationship is like hugging a person with one hand and having a knife in the other hand that's to the throat. (laughs) (laughs) And each person holds that knife. Shall I say, this is being very, very personal. Yeah. But on my own honeymoon, the knife took the form of being afraid I was going to kill my husband. Oh. He got sick. We were in Indonesia, and he got sick. So I was going out and playing, and he had a fever. And I realized I was afraid I was going to kill him, and that I hadn't gotten in an intimate relationship because the last intimate relationship I had been in, my boyfriend basically went psychotic and never recovered. Mm -hmm. And I had internalized responsibility for that without realizing that I even felt that way, and that I had kept myself out of relationships because of that. At some level, there were other reasons too. And boom, that popped up. Wow. That reminded me of a, of a kind of psychotic relationship I was involved in many, many years ago. That, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing, the dimensions of human relationships and, it is. and experience. And what comes up, what, what emerges from the unconscious. So. And how when two human beings with their own issues come together and and start bouncing off of each other. And guess what he did when I said that to him, that I was afraid I'd kill him? He laughed. (laughs) And when he laughed, it wasn't a mean laugh. And Mm -hmm. it actually completely evaporated that feeling of mine because he had been through so much in his life. And here I was this little nice thing that he couldn't (laughs) imagine killing him. And that was the perfect response for me. And I guess actually that sort of says something about a healing power of laughter sometimes. Yeah. It diffuses It can the diffuse the tension, yeah. yeah. And turn the whole perceived situation on its head. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you seem to really love your work. I do love my work. And I'm wondering how have you managed to keep your work fresh and alive and not burn out? Well, and that's the funny thing is that I think I'm fresher and more alive with it than I've ever been. And it's now I was licensed in 85. And, you know, I think because it's a two-way street. I think that when people transform, I transform too. And it's fascinating to have that happen. So I've never suffered from burnout and I've never even really tasted it except in a momentary way. And I think maybe because I learn so much and I grow so much from what I do. And also, I think the focus on creativity and that people wind up bringing out their own creativity, whether or not they knew they were coming in for that, because I believe that that's kind of the highest level for everyone, even though I don't mean artistic creativity, but just being able to be new Mm. in some way, whether it's how you drive to work or how you teach your class or you know it's like the presence that you bring into each moment exactly and i like the ellen langer way of thinking of mindfulness as opposed to the john kabat-zinn way of thinking of perceiving novelty Mm. so talk about novelty and the importance of novelty and maybe to the nonlinear, because in the nonlinear universe It changes all the time. Nothing stays the same. It's just an illusion because it's a longer time scale. And so everything is new minute to minute. And it's just our human limitation that gives the illusion of something repeating. 
So nothing does repeat. And the ability to feel that, I guess, is a good way of striving to embody the true nonlinearity of the universe. And I think if we feel it, there's no room to get bored. I'm an enemy to boredom. I told my kids when they were little that if you're bored, it's because you're boring. And they, they stopped saying they're bored. I don't think either one of them gets bored. Yeah, and burnout, I think, is an imbalance. There's something that is being in, either enacted from their own issues. Very often, if a child feels pressure to take care of another member of the family at their own expense, then that becomes a recipe for burning out. Or compassion, fatigue, where the emotional dimension of contagion sort of outpaces the cognitive dimension of understanding the world of the other and understanding the differences between self and other in a more cognitive way. So you need a balance there. So how do you integrate your psychotherapy work into the rest of your life? It sounds like you're, you're also a very creative person and you must have a lot of other things going on in your life. And how much of your life is your psychotherapy work and how much of your life is other stuff? And how do they come together in a way that that feels balanced mm -hmm. and enriching for you? So, yeah, I would say my psychotherapy is kind of the core that keeps grounding me and regrounding me over and over again. But in terms of my week, I've always only practiced three days a week, really long days. I start at seven often and finish at six, and I never go later than six. I've started earlier and earlier, but never later. And then I use my other days to, it depends what stage of life that I'm in. I used to rock climb with my other days. I definitely write books. I do my art. Most recently, I'm super excited because next week at Lincoln Center, an opera is playing that I wrote the libretto for. And it's the most complicated performance that Juilliard has ever put on and I put fractals in the words of the libretto and the composer Jonathan Daw put fractals in the music and I'm so excited I'm jumping out of my skin and that kind of thing whether it's being pulled or just jumping and or leaping into new places that also cross-fertilizes back into my work and keeps me fresh from the outside to bring back in so sometimes I get stimulated from inside the practice, sometimes from outside. I also dance a lot. I dance maybe four, sometimes five times a week. I do ballet and jazz, and that's like a joy factory for me. So you're taking classes. Taking classes. Yeah. And watching myself learn mm. at my advanced age, watching my process, and I'm still getting better. I don't think that's an illusion. I think I am still getting better. I started as an adult, so I'm not one of these people that started as a little kid, wrecked my body, and then it's downhill from there. But this and is something that you get real joy out of. I get real joy out. And so this I, is like play. This is like an element of, totally. of play in your life. So you're, right. you play your play in your life. I play with play. <laughs> I guess I have to meta level of play. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All the time I'm playing, whether it's with art or in dance or with yoga. I also do yoga, have for many years, and I play with the edges. I'm always, always advancing myself as much as I can in learning about how to do that. And that has something to do with what you said earlier about, you know, finding those tiny little places and then working my way in. 
because after you've done like 12,000 sun salutations, it's really, <laughs> it's hard to find something new. Or joy. In well, it. as I've switched over from mostly having a yoga practice to mostly doing a dance, having mm. a dance at this point, in, mm-hmm. at this stage in my life. Mm-hmm. I may switch back as I keep getting older, but the action for me is in the dance right now. Mm. It's more like cross-training with the yoga. Mm-hmm. And touching touching home, touching back the foundations and this sort of thing. But the action is in the dance. Well, it's been great talking with you. Ella, it's been great students. to talk to you, too. We've, I've said some stuff I've never said before, and that's really fun. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I love when that happens. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so again, thank you so much. Thank you. That was Terry Marks Tarlow. She's a clinical psychotherapist with a practice in Los Angeles. And coming up next in a few minutes, I'll be interviewing another clinical psychotherapist, Ronald J. Frederick, the author of Loving Like You Mean It, Use the Power of Emotional Mindfulness to Rewire Your Brain and Transform Your Relationships.
My next guest is Ronald J. Frederick. Ronald J. Frederick is a clinical psychologist whose practice focuses on the transforming power of emotional and relational experience. He's the author of Loving Like You Mean It, Use the Power of Emotional Mindfulness to Rewire Your Brain and Transform Your Relationships. He's also a senior faculty member of the Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy Institute and co-founder of the Center for Courageous Living. Ron, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I thoroughly enjoyed the book, and I'm I'm so impressed with it. I'm I've been doing this. Wow. I've been doing this kind of psycho spiritual work on myself for over forty years, and read many many books in this realm. And I found that this book really put it all together in a very beautiful and very clear way, with wonderful examples of your own patients using the approach you write about in this book to to open up their their relationships. Wow. Thank you so much. Really is so gratifying to hear that. You know, the book was a little bit delayed and uh coming out. So I'm just starting to get feedback and so you're very early on in that process. So it really is a wonderful thing cuz I really believe in what I'm talking about and feel really good about this book, and yet it's a vulnerable thing to put it out in the world and wonder if people are going to feel the same way. So thank you so much. Mm. In your introduction, you quote Rilke as saying, for one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult of all our tasks, the ultimate, the last test and proof, the work for which all other work is but preparation. So, yeah. so why, why is that so difficult for us humans? Well, this is what I talk about in Loving Like You Mean It. It's not difficult for some people, but for many, many of us, it's challenging. And the reason that it's challenging has so much to do with our early experiences in life. And if I could say a little bit about that and give your listeners just sort of a thumbnail sketch, we start with an awareness or an understanding that attachment, that is our connections are fundamental to us and are fundamental to us as humans and as infants It really is a life and death matter when we're born about whether we are connecting with and forming secure attachments with our caregivers. Because as humans, we are entirely dependent on our caregivers, unlike, you know, different animals that, you know, are up and walking a couple minutes after they're born. Not us, you know. We need to be carried around (laughs) for a long time and um, just in this very, it's important to understand in this very primary fundamental way that we come into the world keenly aware of whether or not our caregiver is there for us and there for us in a way that we need them. And it's very, very primitive. I mean, our feelings, we cry, we scream, 
mothers, parents, caregivers learn to understand the different cries of an infant and what they mean. It's very, very primitive. So we come into the world really, really needing to connect. And we do that through our emotions because we don't have language. We just have emotions. That's how we communicate behavior, what we see. It's all in this very, very emotionally intense time. So we have that piece. Now, we combine that with the fact that when we're born, our brains really are like a lump of clay. I mean, all the neurons are there. They're ready to start doing their thing, which means when they get stimulated, they start firing and then wiring together and creating the neural architecture of our brain. I like to talk to talk about it as the software that gets downloaded into our brain. And we're having these early experiences with our caregivers, and those are all our relational lessons. That's our relational software that's getting wired into our brain. So it really depends on how that goes. Now, if you think that emotion, we're really living in the world of emotion, how our emotions are responded to is telling us everything about ourselves, who we are, are we lovable, are our caregivers going to be there for us? In other words, can we expect that the other in our relationship will be there for us? And what can we expect in terms of their reactions? So, now, we know that we can have, there are those of us who have had traumatic early experiences where maybe our parents or caregivers were abusive in some way. That's sort of on the extreme of a continuum. But there are very subtle ways in which people respond to their emotions And we all have discomfort around certain feelings and connection. And all of that gets picked up by the infant and wired in. So depending on how our early relationships go, that really has an impact on what kind of software we end up operating with throughout our lives. So in this great way, or very early on, we learn a lot of lessons, and if we learn good lessons and we have emotionally responsive parents or caregivers, we're set. And we grow up, and we can go into relationships, and we can feel comfortable about our feelings. We know how to use them. We don't have to think twice about it. We don't get overwhelmed by our feelings. We don't get thwarted by our feelings, and we can connect. Great. There's a lot of people who are like that. But there are many, many of us who had less than optimal experiences in our early lives, and that's the kind of software we have. So there's one more piece that's hugely important, is that all that software is operating on an implicit level, which means we're not aware of it. It activates us. It activates our nervous systems. It inspires fear endanger and threaten us oftentimes when it's not there and it does that thinking that it's helping us but now we have this early software that doesn't really apply to our life it doesn't matter our brain's going to do what it thinks it needs to do to take care of us 
So we go into our adult relationships, all of this is to say, we go into our adult relationships either set up for success or we're going to have problems. And that is the piece that makes loving really hard because unconsciously we're responding in our relationships as though certain feelings, certain needs, certain desires are dangerous. And we've learned to adapt to avoid those experiences. And that's where we run into problems because in order for us to have deeply satisfying, healthy, constructive relationships that work, we really need to be able to make use of all of our emotional selves with ourselves and in relationship. So that's sort of why I said it was going to do a short story, but that's the longer story about what makes loving hard. Well, that's still a very short encapsulation of that. And you talk a lot about the software that our brains operate on and how it operates at an unconscious, implicit level. And we have, we humans have these higher brains, these prefrontal cortexes. But in the book, you describe how this early life software that that we've downloaded through our interactions with the world around us and in particular with the people most intimate with us, our caregivers, as you refer to them, usually our our parents, our lower brain, our reptilian brain Uh gets programmed in these reactive ways that that really set the tone for, for the rest of our lives. So I would love for you to talk about our lower brain and that part of our nervous system, how it gets triggered and why, why it's so difficult to recognize that and to deal with what's happening and to be able to use our higher brain to regulate those things. This is so important. I'm so appreciating this question. Somewhere in my studies, not too long ago, I read something about our brain development, and it was surprising and yet very enlightening and helps to explain part of the story. The part of our emotional brain, the amygdala, has several functions, but one of them in particular is to look out for danger. Now, you appropriately referred to uh, the part of our brain and the reptilian part of our brain, which you know implies, and is true, that this is a really old part of our brain. And what I mean by that is that it was one of the first parts of the brain to come online in terms of evolution. So keep that in mind because if you know it is uh, this part of our brain that developed eons ago, what the world looked like eons ago is very different. And the kinds of threats that we faced, you know, as early humans were pretty dramatic and severe. And we needed a brain that was going to help us deal with these things. And the amygdala is the part of the brain that's telling us whether we're in danger or not. So we survived because of that part of our brain that is this very basic important primary thing that we need to have in our lives. So I read that that part of our brain is up and running at eight months gestation. 
So this is a really striking point, because what it's saying is before we're even born, the part of our brain that recognizes whether we're safe or whether we're in danger is up and running. Why should it be that way? Because we need to know that as soon as we come into the world. We need to know whether we're safe, whether we're in danger. If we're in danger, we can send out signals to get the help that we need. All right. I talked uh, in the first question about the lessons that get wired in. Well, the reptilian part of the brain or the amygdala works really quickly and to our benefit. And it works without us even knowing it. So I'm sure many people can relate to having had an experience where something happened and we jumped out of harm's way before we even realized what was happening. So, you know, you'd step out of the way of an oncoming car before you even realized, before your prefrontal cortex or your conscious awareness said, oh my God, here comes a car, right? That's pretty fabulous that our brain can do that. And it does it on an unconscious level. If we had to stop and think about it, we wouldn't survive, right? And the stop and think about it part is the part of the brain that you talked about, the prefrontal cortex. That's the part of the brain that comes on. It's more rational, and it can see sort of what's happening and weigh in. But it's slower. Now, it's not working at a snail's pace, but, you know, it's a fraction of a second or whatever slower than the amygdala. Now, as you can see, all of that is important to us in terms of survival and evolution. And so we have this part of the brain that's very powerful, the amygdala, and it senses whether we're in danger or not, and it activates us to respond before we even know what's happening. How does it activate us? Our sympathetic nervous system comes into play. Uh, adrenaline starts to rush in our body. Um, we are mobilized to do what we need to do. That's all happening without us having to say, oh, gee, I better stop and like do this and you know get ready to deal with whatever is going to happen. And that happens very, very quickly. All right, so then what happens is that very early on in life, we experience these different disruptions in our relationships with our parents as threats. They're threats to our survival. And that's the stuff that gets wired in. So now in our lives, when, for instance, our partner doesn't respond to us, okay, so we reach out, perhaps we try to make a connection, we're trying to talk, they're not there, they're uh, distracted, or maybe they have an emotional reaction internally and they go quiet in some way. Our early brain reads that as an attachment threat and our system kicks in. We rationally may know, oh, well, you know, that it isn't, but our emotional brain kicks in as if it is. Now, we get activated. And unless we're aware of what's happening inside of us, 
our brain is just doing what it needs to do to face and deal with danger. It thinks that it's helping us. Now, when we get activated, we're prompted to have responses, and we're going to just do what we do and we have done in order to face these things. And this is where our defensive behaviors come in. Now, it all happens so quickly, and our emotions are very, very powerful. If we're feeling threatened in some way, um, our body responds, like I said, in this very primitive way. And we go along with it. So it's unconscious, it's primitive, it's primal, and we go along with it, and it's emotional. Essentially, so, it's hijacking us. Yes, it is. That's ex- it's, that, I, I didn't develop that phrase around it, but it absolutely is hijacking us. And when we say us, what we mean, what I would say is, it's hijacking our more integrated, healthy, core self. So it's in this way, the most primitive part of us can lead the show. Right, and it often does it at totally inappropriate times and in the worst situations, particularly yes, in, in, our most, in, in our most intimate relationships. And we find ourselves doing things that afterwards because we're we're totally lost in the moment right we we deeply regret and sometimes we don't even know how to deal with that how to come back to our partner and actually talk about it so sometimes these things just fester and spiral further and further out of control it's such a good point and then like you're saying we all have these experiences but we don't have an understanding of it then we feel ashamed, or uh, maybe we want to make amends, but we don't have the software in place where we could see the next step forward and how to do that. And things don't get repaired, which is the most important thing in a relationship, because look, we're not talking about having to learn how to be perfect. We're just talking about how to navigate our emotional experience And there are going to be times, like you say, where our defensive part of us, our reactive part of us, wins out. So what can we do if we can come back and say, hey, I lost it, or, you know, I'm sorry, I, you know, um, it got the best of me, and my feelings got the best of me, and now I'm in a calmer place, and I can talk about this, and we can work through it. That puts us in a much better place. But so it's like a double whammy. We have this reaction. We may be able to step away from it and say, gee, I don't know why the hell I like God so reactive, or God, I shouldn't have said that, or, you know, oh my gosh, what happened to me? It's like just part of me jumped out and like took over. Mm-hmm. And then we don't see a path forward and it keeps on uh, repeating itself. So we need to be able to come back at times, you know, when we all have our moments. We all do. I've been doing this for many, many years. And, you know, I have my moments where I get triggered at times, and it's tough. This is why I'm writing the book, because as Rilke said, you know, it's hard work. And being mindful of our experience and working with our experience is an ongoing thing. Yes, and I'm talking with Ronald J. Frederick, author of Loving Like You Mean It, 
Use the power of emotional mindfulness to rewire your brain and transform your relationships. And this is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. So one of the great challenges that we have in these circumstances is distinguishing our past emotions, the ones that, that have been wired into our software from an early age, you know, being able to distinguish those from our current authentic emotions that are arising in, in relation to what's actually happening and use the term emotional mindfulness. Mm-hmm. You know, mindfulness is all the rage these days in terms of mm-hmm. meditation and mental mindfulness. Talk about this emotional mindfulness and learning to distinguish between our past emotions and our present emotions, quite literally, in the moment. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mindfulness, if we distill things down, is all about um, being aware and present in the here and now, in each moment, as it's happening, as it's unfolding. And to do that in a non-judgmental way. So if we start off with sort of that understanding, it's moment-to-moment awareness. And moment-to-moment awareness where you're aware of what's going on, but you're not so wedded to your experience that you don't have some flexibility in terms of how you respond. That uh, is what we're trying to cultivate with our emotional experience. It just back up a little. Uh, when I wrote my first book, Living Like You Mean It, I had this experience with my editor the first time that we met, which was after we signed a contract and they said, we want you to write this book. And you know, I had written this whole proposal. She had read it and she asked me this question in our meeting, you know, what is it that you do with your clients? And I start to go into an explanation of what I do with my clients and I help them become more aware of their feelings and aware of things that they haven't been, they didn't realize were going on underneath the surface and how to lean into their feelings and feel less afraid of them. And she kept on saying, yeah, but you know, what do you call that? What do you call that? And from somewhere inside of me, I really don't know where it came from. I said, emotional mindfulness. And she pointed her finger at me and she said, that's it. So I walked away from that meeting and I said, okay, so there's a name for this, but I'm probably should learn a little bit more about what mindfulness is about (laughs) because I wasn't a mindfulness practitioner at the time. I was a psychologist uh, doing experiential, emotion-focused, relational work. And I went and started to read different things about mindfulness. And in particular, I was reading um, work that clinicians have written about uh, the integration of mindfulness into psychotherapy. And what I saw was this amazing overlap, even in the language that people are using as we talk about our experience. What are you noticing? What's happening inside of you? What are you experiencing in your body? All these ways of tuning into what's happening inside of us. And because of that overlap, we might use the terms interchangeably, mindfulness and emotional mindfulness. But because this experience is emotion-based, this experience meaning our wiring and how it shows up in our relationships, 
and influenced by the work that I do and understanding how we're influenced by emotion and the power of being able to use our emotions in a constructive way. I talk about what we're doing in relationship in our lives as developing emotional mindfulness. And that's all about becoming more attuned to our feelings, what's going on inside of us, being able to regulate our emotional experience so that we can distill it and get to the core of what's going on for us. Because in terms of our reaction, that threat reaction that we experience, that's in response to something else going on inside of us. So for instance, our partner does something and we feel hurt by it, or our partner does something and we feel angry perhaps. That's our core feeling, but we respond to that feeling and what's happening with anxiety and with fear. So what you were pointing out earlier about, you know, getting to what's sort of inside, getting to what's at the bottom, and getting to what is often hidden behind our fear or our reaction are other feelings, and often it's feelings like vulnerability, feeling afraid, feeling hurt, feeling in pain, having needs, wanting to reach out, as well as also feeling angry, or it can also be feeling joyful and wanting to make a connection and share. So that can take a bit of work if we're not aware of what's happening for us. So it's developed based on the work that I do and with my clients. So my work is my therapeutic home is Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, AEDP for short, and it's an emotion-focused relationally-based, attachment-informed therapy. To take that and put it into a process, which I detail in my book, are the steps of how we can bring emotional mindfulness to our relationship. So we start off with needing to become aware of what's happening inside of us. So the first step is recognize and name what happens when we get triggered how can we uh, become more aware of the signs that we can get triggered? And I talk about this in length in the book. If we start to tune into what's going on inside of us, we start to see where anxiety, where fear, where reactivity is showing up for us. And that's a sign that we're getting triggered. Another sign that we're getting triggered is our defensive behavior. All these different kinds of things that we do because we think that we're threatened on some level, that's why it's called a defense, but to defend against our emotional experience. So for instance, we might feel vulnerable inside or we might feel afraid. We don't respond with that feeling. Instead, we respond with complaining or blaming you know, our partner. That would be a defense. It's covering up what's underneath. So there's something underneath. We're not sure what that is. And that leads us to the second step of this process, emotional mindful process, which is to stop, drop, and stay. So we go inside and we start to listen more deeply to what's happening inside of us. We can get at the essence of our emotional experience. Now, 
there's a lot, and depending on, you know, just how unmindful we've been or unconscious we've been, it can take a lot of work to begin to sort these things out. But over time, the more we do it, we start to see our patterns and we start to recognize our feelings more readily. Once we recognize them, there's a third step in the four-step process, which is pause and reflect. So we touch into our feelings and then our core feelings, I should say, and then we need to pause and reflect on what are my feelings telling me, what's happening here, how does this make sense to me, and how can I use this information in a beneficial way in my relationship. And then that leads us to the fourth step, which is mindfully relate. And mindfully relate is about then taking whatever it is we learned about ourselves and in a mindful way, sharing that with our partner. Now, like you said, you know, we can do this in the immediate moment. It sounds like a lot to do. And actually, each one of those steps we could also immerse ourselves in and spend a lot of time with. We might be spending a lot of time becoming more aware of what's happening for us. We might be aware of what's happening for us, but we have a hard time slowing down our feelings so that we can work with them before being reactive. All of these things take work, but we also can very much do it at the moment. If we slow things down, recognize that I'm getting activated, listen to what's happening inside of me, recognize what that feeling is, pause for a moment before we take the next step with our partner. Really what we're trying to do is stretch the space between stimulus and response. Something happens and if we just go with our primitive brain, we're just gonna have a response. But if we can slow things down and stretch that space, which we can, and that's what emotional emotional mindfulness helps us to do, then we start to steer our own ships and we start to free ourselves up from that early wiring and give ourselves the opportunity to respond in different ways. And when we're doing that, When we're in the process of doing that, even just slowing down and attuning to our experience, we're developing new behaviors. We're not just developing new behaviors, but when we put our attention in that direction, we're actually rewiring our brain. The issue that we face is if we keep on doing the same things that we've been doing over and over again, we're just reinforcing those habits. It takes a lot of work. Again, I hearken back to Roka to do things differently, to stretch outside of the confines of our early wiring and move in different and what can be scary directions. But when we do that, we're actually developing new neural circuitry in our brain, new neural circuitry that can support us, that can support us as ourselves emotionally and help us to be able to bring our healthiest selves to our relationships. So in that way, uh, provides the foundation for and the new programming that we need to be able to move forward and have different relation, different kinds of relationships. Mm-hmm. And you talk about how 
the key is that we can actually tune directly into our authentic core feelings in the moment. And that's, that really is the work that we have to do is to dive yeah. in underneath our defensive reactions totally. that are covering up our core mm-hmm. emotions mm-hmm. And, and then learning to be able to stay with them because we learn from a very early age that those emotions are very, very uncomfortable and mm-hmm. they're not safe. Exactly. So we're, we're, we're really swimming upstream. Yes. Emotionally. And that's hard. Yes. And that's hard. And as, as human beings, you know, when something is aversive, what do we want to do? You know, this is innate. When something is aversive, we want to avoid it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the screwy part of it is, is that many of us are suffering in relationship, and that's aversive, too. We may be suffering, we may be having relationship challenges, we may be having real discord and disconnect in our relationships, or we just have a sense that we're not as connected as we could be, that there could be more uh, between the two of us. And with, you know, with all of that, what it takes is us being able to like we're saying, move in a different direction. And that can feel scary, and that can feel challenging, and that can feel aversive. That's only because that's what we've learned, like you said. And when we develop new ways of being with ourselves, when we can, when we can lean in to these feelings, we come to see that our emotional experience doesn't have to be overwhelming that it isn't scary, and in fact, it is very useful to us. And, I mean, because that's why they're there. I mean, like, this is just, you know, also why our emotions have survived all this time, because they're supposed to be helpful to us. So it does require that we do, that we stretch. But, like, you know, like I say, I mean, I, after I get off the phone with you, I'm going to go to the gym. And every morning I go through this thing in my head where I I think, oh, it'd be really nice not to go to the gym today. (laughs) Maybe I won't go. And I don't particularly like doing it. I'm not the kind of person that goes, yeah, I had a great workout. But it's benefiting me in some way. And, you know, I, I can understand that and I appreciate it. And certainly as I get older, there are things that are important to me, like, my cognitive health and but I still am having to push myself in some way I'm still having a stretch and we know like you know from doing physical things as you develop it may be feel awkward at first it may feel challenging or painful at first but we develop skill and it changes our experience that's what happens with our emotions as well unless we avoid them if we avoid them then they continue to feel like this threatening thing that we you know don't want to have anything to do with but over and over again i mean i've seen it in my own life and that's part of what has motivated me to write and talk about these things but i see it over and over again with my clients and then when i go out into the world and i do workshops i'm teaching people some of these basic things about being with our feelings and it is revelatory to them, and it's just 
so clear to me how we're walking around in the world trying to put one foot in front of the other, and we really didn't get a good manual for our operating system. And people come to see, we come to see like, oh my gosh, it can be hard, but something really good can come from it. And actually, it ultimately over time, it's not as hard. Yes, I've I've had that experience myself. It it does take a lot of work, particularly in the beginning, because we don't seem to be making much progress at the very beginning. It's like the, you know, pushing against this huge mass. In the beginning, it takes a tremendous amount of effort to even get it to budge. But once we get it moving, and then it's it's easier and easier, and it's a long process. And initially, it takes courage it takes that impetus of courage to to really be emotionally authentic and be present with those scary feelings but then we also need to develop the skill to express ourselves yeah. effectively and express our emotions and to express them with with the people that are closest to us who are the ones who tend to trigger us the most exactly <laughs> so that gets back to what Rilke had to say about how difficult this whole thing is. Yeah, right, because the challenges keep coming, right? And you can work on these things inside of yourself, but then you, when you go to talk to your partner, they may be doing the very thing that they do or whatever it is, or our unconscious is you know, still picking up on something, and uh, we get activated, and we continue to get, a- to get activated. You know, I'm... 20-some years into my relationship, my marriage, and I like to say (laughs) that I'm constantly given opportunities to practice emotional mindfulness and affect regulation (laughs) on a daily basis. I mean, I didn't grow up in a family where I didn't get, you know, the kind of help that I, that we need to develop these skills. So, I uh, continue to have to work at it. But the piece around, I think you're shining some light on this fourth step is how we interact, you know, with our partners, right? Mm-hmm. And so all the skills that we're developing, just even when we start with ourselves, attuning to what's going on inside of us, slowing down, learning to regulate our emotional experience, really tuning in and the phrase that I use that comes from mindfulness is participatory observation. So we're both participants. By that I mean we're having an experience. You're sitting there with your standing there, whatever you're doing with your partner, and you're engaging. And we also can observe our experience. So that's the frontal part of our brain, a capacity of our prefrontal cortex, which is to observe what's happening for us. And at any moment in time, your observer can come online and I can say, okay, I am talking now on the phone with you and I notice that my throat feels a little dry and I notice where I feel the energy in my body and I notice how I'm thinking and then wanting to pull myself back into the present moment. And that is our observer. So when we're with our partners, 
the essence of working from an emotionally mindful stance is to balance this participatory observational experience. So we go in and out of both being a participant and also observing. When we bring our observer online and we're noting what's happening for us, it may start to get ahead of us, but we notice that and we do something to calm ourselves down or we notice that our partner is having a reaction and then how it affects me. Uh, by bringing our observer online, we help to slow this process down. And it's really, you hear me say over and over again, slowing things down. It's really in stretching that space in between stimulus and response where, as you were saying, it could be hard to budge in a different direction. But that's really where we find the freedom to be able to do that. Yes. I wish we had more time. There's so much more we could talk about, but I've really enjoyed this, and and I love the book. I I think this book really offers very clear, very practical, and very effective tools and steps to, to actually do this very difficult work, and I think it's really wonderful that you've you've put it all together in a in a fairly small book, and being someone who has done this work a lot, I have a great appreciation for this. So, um, Thank you so much, Tonio. That's very, very moving to me. So thank you so much for your time and for talking with me about this. It's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the gift of being able to be here to talk about this with you. Why don't you give us your website? It's CFC Living, which stands for Center for Courageous Living, like you said before, it takes a lot of courage to show up to our lives wholeheartedly. So it's cfcliving.com. And I think also if you put the book in, Loving Like You Mean It, it'll lead lead you to our website as well. Thank you again so much, Ronald J. Frederick. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a wonderful week.